Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, world. Welcome once again to Tuesday Talk with T. West Lou. I am your host, Louis Patron. Going to do something different tonight. I'm going to try avoiding talking about Donald Trump. I mean, he, the man, he's all over the news. Whether you're reading it, you're watching it on TV, um, that's all the world talks about, the whole world. Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that. And sometimes I get sick of talking about Donald Trump, hearing about Donald Trump, and so forth. Uh, there are other things going on in this world, some of them heavy, some of them light, some of them humorous. So I'm going to share some of these with you tonight. Uh, I hope you like them. I tried to put a mix in here somehow. So here's what we're going to start with. I'm going to talk about a perspirant. You know what a perspirant is? Uh, I was going through the Internet last night, and I came across an ad for Old Spice 48-Hour Protection. Old Spice 48-Hour protection and I said what the hell can this be I used to use Old Spice uh, after shave but I stopped years ago but now they got a 48 hour protection antiperspirant spray antiperspirant say for men I said this has got to be interesting so I looked it up and sure enough Old Spice has come out with a spray the men sprayed under their arms and they don't have to bathe for two days would you believe it this spray is good for 48 hours. Ain't no one going to smell them. And that brought to mind something I experienced when I was back in high school and college, back in the early 50s. And that was five-day deodorant pads. You have to understand that back in the early 50s, and this is true, not everyone bathed every day. I mean, today we're all fanatics. I'd sometimes take three showers in a day. But back then, people didn't bathe but once a week generally. So five-day deodorant pads became a big hit because it came in a little bottle, and they were gauze pads, maybe an inch and a half in diameter, soaked in some kind of a fluid. You took one of them out, and you rubbed them under your armpits, and you were good for five days. You didn't have to take a bath. Nobody was going to smell your B.O., et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they sponsored TV shows. They did everything. Wild. Would you believe this? And I, I, mean, I can't believe now people go two days and they need Old Spice 48-hour antiperspirant spray. Anyhow, I said, my God, I haven't even heard of five-day deodorant pads in years. Haven't thought about them. So I screwed around on the Internet here. And guess what? They're still selling five-day deodorant pads. Yep. You can buy them on the Internet. And if you want to buy them off the shelf someplace, go to Walgreens. Walgreens sells five-day deodorant pads. Okay, moving on from deodorant pads, I want to talk about Mount Everest. The highest or one of the highest mountains in the world, 29,029 feet. 29,029 feet. Well, it used to be that uh, you couldn't climb to the top. It became a physical impossibility for a human being to walk to the top, 29,000 feet, to the top of Mount Everest. And then all of a sudden, in 1953, on May 29, 1953, I was getting ready to graduate from college at the time. No, I was getting ready to graduate from high school, high school, my God, high school. 
A fellow by the name of Edmund Hillary and his guide, Tenzing Norgay, were the first ones to climb to the top of Mount Everest. Uh, Edmund Hillary got there first. Uh, and this was a big deal. Would it ever happen again? Who would make it? Well, today, so many years later, oh, what, 60, 70 years later, the way I'm going to put it, it's an everyday thing today to climb to the top of Mount Everest. It's hard to believe. Uh, there was a, there's a photo that's been running around on the Internet for about five days showing there's a traffic jam getting up to the top of Mount Everest. This picture, uh, in color, uh, it was shot from about a quarter of a mile down the hill, down the mountain, and all the way up in that quarter mile were bodies of people waiting to take the next step, and they were standing close to each other, uh, waiting to get to the next step to get to the top. It seems now it's relatively easy to get to the top, and many want to say, and I can understand why I, want, I climbed to the top of Mount Everest. Uh, the only trouble is there's a traffic jam. There's too many people, and it takes a lot of time to get there. So what's happening is this. Let me say this also. Naples, Nepal, rather, where, where Mount Everest is located, they're delighted that so many people want to climb Mount Everest because to get the ticket to make the climb is $11,000 a person. And they're going up by the hundreds of these people now. The country's doing very well. Anyhow, they get up there, and it can be very deadly. Uh, there are lethal conditions for climbers. Uh, it comes from frostbite and altitude sickness. Now, I don't know what altitude sickness is, but that seems the big killer. In the last eight days, in the last eight days, 11 people have died on the climb up Mount Everest are coming down. And they all died, these 11 people, in that last quarter mile going up or in the first quarter mile coming down. There are so many people, especially going up, that sometimes they can't move. They stand there. One fellow stood there for 12 hours, did not move, and then he dropped dead. And apparently weather conditions are what they can't move. And then they go on, but this fellow didn't go on. He didn't make it. Uh, but isn't that amazing? Now everybody's going up uh, Mount Everest. Very, I would want to do it if I was younger. You train for this, I assume, and everything else, because it's a major feat. Uh, but they have traffic jams now. Anyhow, now we're going to go to our soil here in America. Our farmlands are being bought up rapidly by foreign countries, especially China. I wrote about three years ago, I wrote an article, I think I, I ran in some paper, or it may have been one of my blogs here, that China was buying up a lot of farmland in California. If you recall, three years ago, California was in a very severe drought. Water, you couldn't buy water. They didn't have enough water. And California is a big, exporter of fruits, vegetables, and nuts, especially nuts. They all need a lot of water, a lot of water, and there wasn't enough water. And farmers were getting hurt. You know, they couldn't grow their crops. They were going to lose their land, so they started selling off to the Chinese. Well, it turns out now that they're still buying up our lands here, our farmlands. The Chinese and other foreign countries 
Today, nearly 30 million, 30 million acres of U.S. farmland is held by foreign investors. Right now, they're looking into the Midwest, where because of the Chinese tariff war that Trump has initiated, those farmers are getting killed, and they're being forced to sell at a cheaper price. And China and some other nations are buying up property now in the Midwest. Uh, all I can say is this isn't healthy for our country. Uh, we don't want any other country owning a significant portion of our country or any portion of our country. Uh, but this is what's happening. And right now this thing is zooming up every day. More and more properties are being sold. The number is going to significantly increase, uh, the experts tell us, in the next few years. And right now the motiv motivating factor, the moving factor, is Trump's Chinese tariff war. China is the second biggest creditor of the United States. The United States owes China $1.2 trillion, $1.2 trillion. Now, for your information, do you know who the biggest creditor of the United States is? Social Security. Yep, Social Security. Uh, the federal government owes the Social Security Fund 2.1 or 2.2 trillion dollars. Now let me talk quickly about the Social Security Fund, which is China. I'm really interested in talking about. Back during the days of Ronald Reagan as president, he needed money because he said he was going to cut taxes and he wasn't able to cut taxes, and he didn't want to be embarrassed because he had made a promise like you know Trump's going to build a wall and he's not building it, and Reagan didn't want to not cut taxes. He didn't want to look like Donald Trump looks and not building the wall. So he got his people together, and he said, hey, there's a lot of money sitting in Social Security in a trust fund. Understand that Social Security up to that time was paying in more every day than it was paying out. And by the way, it still does that today. I'll get to it and explain. This is all, excuse me, a lot of bullshit about the Social Security fund not having available funds. Be that as it may, uh, we pay our money into Social Security. The government takes it out. The day it goes in, the same day it comes out. And it goes over into the government's general fund. And then they spend it on whatever they want, problem, the wars, anything. But they never pay it back. They never pay it back. And the reason they don't pay it back is Reagan was a smart man. I'm not knocking him for this, but it was wrong what he did here. Uh, the agreement between Social Security and the United States government is that the government will give an, a, a, an agreement to pay back the money. It's merely an agreement. It's not a bank note. It's nothing you can take to a bank and borrow on. Uh, it's really, in effect, nothing but an IOU. IOUs are not legally enforceable. Uh, so what happens is, they take it out, and they never pay back to Social Security. If they paid back, the Social Security fund have a ton of money. We're still not in deep trouble with Social Security, maybe 15, 20 years from now. The only way it can be avoided is by starting to pay back, pay back what you borrow. The United States government should pay back what it borrows or stop taking for a while. 
what really irritates me is when you hear senators and congressmen talk about this and how they're going to save Social Security and the age limit has to be cut and the benefits have to be cut because it's going out of business, Social Security. They don't even know why the problem exists and that the government owes over $2 trillion to the Social Security Fund. Now, having said all this, let's go back to China. We owe China, the United States owes China $1.2 trillion. How do they borrow this money? What the Chinese do is they buy our treasury bonds. They buy United States treasuries every day. And by buying these treasuries, they buy them on the open market. Uh, they, in effect, are loaning money to the United States. And those treasury bonds reflect their right to go back and get their money if they want to. And how it works is this. Chinese keep buying. They never sell. And they know we need money, and the Chinese print their own paper. So it's easy for them to make money when they haven't got money. It's going to bring them down someday economically, but not yet. Though they get close on occasion. Anyhow, if China ever starts selling these treasury bonds or stops buying these treasury bonds, within days our economy would fall. Now we are in a tariff war with China. Trump's saying all these terrible things. Trump's doing all these terrible things to China. At some point, China may say, up yours, Donald Trump, and they may go out and dump, start dumping their treasury bonds, just selling them, which will, if they do that, it would raise America's borrowing costs. We have to go to the bank. You know, they're, they're affecting our, 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 our economic uh the ground of our economy by selling these off and so if we're borrowing money at one and a half percent it may be three and a half percent it affects the borrowing cost it would weaken our dollar which would destroy us all over the world the american dollar is the strongest thing going that's why what people respect economically in this world and it would plunge global markets into chaos which is a nice way of saying recession back in march China sold $20 billion of treasury bonds in one day. We never heard about this at the time. Our government went crazy. Were they doing this to us? Were they finally going to get even? Uh, even back in March, they were talking about the tariffs, a tariff war, I believe. And anyhow, they just did it for one day to see what we would do. We push China. I am telling you that if we push China and continue to push China, their big card, the card they're going to play, because we're going to be hurting them. They're, they're hurting, too. This tariff war hurts them, too. It's hurting us more than them at the present time, but Trump doesn't see it with the farmers not being able to sell their produce and everything else. Car manufacturers can't complete the manufacturing pro, uh, on the cars, because can't complete a car because they don't have certain parts which were bought from Japan, uh, there's going to be a disaster here. If they ever do this, we're in trouble financially, and that's the card they're going to play to destroy our economy if we keep screwing around. Take note, Donald Trump. Memorial Day. Yesterday was the Memorial Day. Great weekend. Uh, always a great weekend. And people do still remember our war dead on Memorial Day. It isn't all cookouts and swimming parties. Uh, we still do those things. But we all remember on Memorial Day to honor our war dead. 
Uh, it's just something that is ingrained in us. Now, how did how did Memorial Day come to be? There are so many thoughts, ideas on how it occurred. Someone will tell you it was Tom Jones in New Hampshire, Harry Smith in Indiana. There are more stories how Memorial Day got to be and who was responsible for it. I did a little homework, and here's the story I come up with, and this is the story I believe. Uh, see what you think, but I'll share it with you. It's very interesting. It's what I call the forgotten history of Memorial Day. It's 1866. The Civil War ended in 1865. We are in Columbus, Georgia. It's the first Memorial Day ever was in Columbus, Georgia, a city in the South, a city in the Confederacy. There were many Confederate soldiers buried there. And interestingly, in the same graveyard, Next to a Confederate soldier would be a Union soldier. They buried them where they fell, and they were all in the same cemeteries. That's the way it was. And it was this way up north also. Well, the people of, this is just less than a year after the Civil War ended, the people of uh, Columbus, Georgia, wanted to honor the dead, so they put flowers on the graves of each uh, the purpose was to put flowers on the grave of each of those Confederate war dead. The women were the ones who put the wreaths together. The women were the ones who placed the flowers on the graves. The men told them what had to be done. And typically in those times, the women went out and did the work. Well, what the women did, they put the wreaths. They put the flowers also on the grave of Union soldiers. They decorated the graves of Union soldiers. Well, this became a big thing. The North heard about it. People in different parts of the North heard about it. And a former Union general, John A. Logan, heard about it. And he was, he had become, after the war, they had a, the Grand Army of the Republic. It was like a veterans union, and he was the president of it. And he went and he saw this, and he said, and I quote, it was not too late for the Union men of the nation to follow the example of the people of the South. It was not too late. And what he was saying was, let's put flowers on the graves up here on our war dead and also on the Confederate war dead who were in our same, the same cemeteries. And th this got picked up pretty good. Uh, it, became, it became popular immediately. The women of the South were lauded for what they did. And it took off. Uh, someone wrote a poem about it, and this helped promote the experience in the North. By the way, it started in 1866 in Columbus, Georgia. It was a fait accompli three years later in 1868. The whole nation was doing it. And this poem was written by Francis Miles Finch. He was a Northern judge. And the poem is The Blue and the Gray. And here's why he wrote it. He said he was inspired. He said, and I quote, it struck me that the South was holding out with friendly hands and that it was our duty. It was our duty not only as conquerors, but as men and their fellow citizens of the nation to grasp it. South was holding out their hand by putting the flowers on the grave and we should recognize their effort and what it meant and we should grasp their hands and say we are all one. There's a line in his poem that I find very interesting and I quote, 
They banish our anger forever when they laurel the graves of our dead. They banish our anger forever when they laurel the graves of the dead. Now, so the custom was in the South, became the custom in the North, and we had Memorial Day. Okay, and it also did another thing. It contributed, it didn't happen, but in some places it contributed to burying the hatchet. Uh, As I said, the feeling, this warm feeling towards each other, who hated each other during the Civil War, the North and the South, spread rapidly. In 1866, I'm sorry, in 1868, a 10-year-old girl uh, whose father died in the Civil War, she was a Northern girl. Her father was a Union soldier. He died in the Civil War. Made a wreath of flowers and sent it to the overseer uh, to the holiday in Lafayette, Indiana. Lafayette, Indiana, with a folded note. And the note read, and I quote, Will you please put this wreath upon some rebel soldier's grave? My dear papa is buried at Andersonville. Andersonville was a terrible place for Union soldiers to go. It was a terrible camp for Union soldiers. Many died there. And perhaps some little girl will be kind enough to put a few flowers on his grave. Touching, touching. And it it was said, and historians now look at it this way, Lincoln, remember Lincoln's line, uh, malice towards none, charity for all, and then he died. Well, this Memorial Day that came quickly through Columbus, Georgia, as I have described it, many felt was a manifestation of Lincoln's desire that the North and the South come together. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. Maybe this isn't the true story, but from my digging, this is the story of how Memorial Day came to be. Bayer Aspirin. We all know Bayer Aspirin. We, oh my God, I take a, bear, a big one every day for my heart. But Bayer Aspirin, we've all used Bayer Aspirin. We all use Bayer Aspirin. It's been on the market forever. I didn't realize how forever, what forever meant until I got into this. Uh, let me tell you the story of Bayer Aspirin because Bayer Aspirin has a dark past, one you will not like. It has a dark past. It wasn't a good person or a good business or a good company during a certain time. The company was founded in 1863. Sometime between that and the early 1900s, they discovered aspirin. That was their gold mine, aspirin. Uh, Now, just sometime in the, I don't know, the 20s, the 1920s, Uh, The six largest pharmaceutical companies in Germany merged, and they called themselves IG Farben, F-A-R-B-E-N. Each operated independently, but the father company or the parent company was IG Farben. There still was a Bayer. Bayer ran their own company and reported to IG Farben. Now, here's what happened. We have to go to World War II. We have to go to the concentration camps. We have to go to Auschwitz. Auschwitz. What happened is this. Bayer used, and IG Farben also, slave labor big time in all of the concentration camps in Germany. Uh, Bayer, especially at Auschwitz, Bayer built the whole plant in Auschwitz. This was on the Auschwitz grounds next to the furnaces or the gas chambers, rather. 
right next to them. They're in the picture. You see a picture of the factory. You see across the road the gas chambers. Uh, anyhow, and they would put to work some of the concentration, the Auschwitz concentration prisoners. Not a lot. Like, they generally ran with 300,000 workers, but most of those workers were slaves or conscripts from countries they had conquered, and they sent the men and women to work at Auschwitz, but they, they didn't put them in the gas chambers. They weren't Jewish, et cetera, et cetera. 30,000 of that 300,000 generally, though, were Auschwitz prisoners, generally of Jewish extraction. Now, they weren't nice people because they, they used that plant to make certain war products, but they also used that plant to experiment, experiment on people. This is where Joseph Mengel, the angel of death, the doctor who ran the experimentation plant in uh, Auschwitz, it was in that portion of Auschwitz that was the Bayer plant. And they did all kinds of terrible things, uh, you know, that they experimented on children, most of whom died. Uh, they, at one time, they, they, they ordered their women. Bayer would order their women from the Nazis at Auschwitz and say, for example, and this happened, I need 150 healthy women. And they did this in writing. This was all business. Germans are very fastidious. They're very businesslike, keep records on everything. I need 150 healthy women. I'll pay you, I think it was RP or RM-170. Don't ask me what the RP or the RM was. I couldn't figure it out even looking it up. Anyhow, and they get 150 healthy women. They used one batch to test new anesthetics. Uh, turned out the anesthetics weren't too good. All 150 women died. So what did they do? They wrote a letter back to the commandant of the concentration camp and said, they died. I need another 150 at the same price per the original contract, please send. That's how they did business. They bought the people in the concentration camps. One of, uh, not at Auschwitz, but at one of the other plants that IG Farben had, they made the gas. They made the gas that they used to kill the Jewish people, okay? Uh, let's see, I got the name here if I can find it. Uh, it's Zykon, Z-Y-K-I-O-N-B. The synthetic gas that was used in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. Uh, so these things went on. They did all their experiments. They, they hurt people badly. You all know it. Uh, and it was acknowledged, too. Uh, in 1995, a long time after the war, 1995, Hal J. Weimer was the CEO of Bayer, 1995. Bayer is a German company yet. He offered a public apology for his company's acts during World War II, which he described as 1935 to 1945, and the Holocaust. They acknowledged that they were bad people, and they did horrible things there. Now, let me share something else with you. Historians, some historians suggest that without Bayer or I.G. Farben, Hitler could not have come to power. He would not have risen to power. There would not have been a second world war uh, because Bayer's people, I.G. Farben's people, uh, they were big donors to Hitler's electoral campaigns at the beginning and supported the Nazis at all times through the war. Uh, they, what are they, 
they um, oh also as the Germans conquered countries, Germans conquered countries, other countries. I.G. Farben will go in and take over the factories in those countries and organize them and prepare them to manufacture whatever Germany needed. Uh, the bad stuff went out at Auschwitz, though, under Bayer. But I'm trying to show you how close they were to the Germans. And uh, they also held stock and were represented on the board of companies which were purchased, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and that's the story. It's a bad thing. They have a bad past. No one knows it, but I thought I should share it. It's interesting to know. It's interesting to know these things. Uh, a man falls into the abyss. He falls into the gutter. He falls into the sewer. And they're still going, Bayer. They're still a big company. Now, my time is over. That's too bad. Uh, I've enjoyed the show tonight. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, and we'll get together next week. Keep listening. Keep telling your friends to listen. I say this every week, but it's true. My numbers keep going up with the show, and I absolutely love it. And so I look forward to being with you again next week. Uh, it's wonderful for me to do it, and I'm glad you are happy to listen. I look forward to being with you again next week. <laughs>